I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 3 John. 3 John. If you're not sure where that is, you turn to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and then go left just a few pages, and you will come to 3 John. We've been working our way through these three letters that John wrote in the first century. And uh, today we're coming to the end of that series, that study, as we look at 3 John. So I'd invite you to listen along as I read to you from 3 John, beginning in verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have, something to the, I have, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for giving us this little letter. Thank you for causing John to write it. Thank you for so preserving it that we have it all these years later. We pray that as we look at it today and try to understand what you want us to understand from it, that you would open our eyes, that you would prepare our hearts, that the Holy Spirit that caused John to write these words would be present and at work in our hearts in these very moments, causing us to believe what we need to believe, that you would change us into the people of your pleasure. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reminded this past week of a story that comes out of the Chronicles of Narnia, specifically out of the magician's nephew. It's the story of when Aslan went to Diggory and asked him if he was ready to help him undo the wrong that he had done in allowing evil into Narnia. Diggory, although he was unsure What he could do said that he was willing to try. Aslan sent Diggory on a quest to a faraway part of the country to a special garden. And in that garden, there was a special tree. It was an apple tree. 
And Diggory was given the responsibility of going to that, uh, that, that uh, garden and to that tree and taking an apple off of the tree and bringing it back to Aslan. Aslan would use that apple to plant a tree that would protect Narnia. Diggory went to the garden and he found the tree and he picked an apple and he put it into his jacket pocket. As he did so, he said that he noticed that it smelled and looked oh so tasty. But he would dare not eat it because Aslan had given him orders to bring the apple to him. As he was leaving the garden, Diggory was stopped by the evil witch Jadis. She mocked Diggory for not eating the apple. Essentially, she said to him, don't you know that this apple is powerful? It brings life, and if you eat it, you will live forever and you can be a king forever. And even more than that, don't you know that it has healing powers? You could take this apple to your mother who is sick and she would be healed. Don't you love her? Aslan will only use the apple for his own good, not yours. Diggory was tempted. Especially about the part of getting healing for his mother. But in the end, Diggory didn't give in. He remembered something that motivated him to be faithful, to, to continue walking in the truth of, that Aslan had given him. We'll come back to what motivated him a little bit later. But he took that apple and he went back to Aslan and he presented it to him. And with the apple, Aslan planted a new tree in Narnia that would protect Narnia from the evil witch. What Lewis has given to us in that story about Diggory is a picture of what it looks like to be faithful, to be obedient, and to walk in the truth. And that is what John is talking about in this little letter, 3 John. Look at what he says in verses 3 and 4. I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, speaking to Gaius, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John says he had no greater joy in all of life than to see that God's people were walking in the truth. And brothers and sisters in Christ, that is what we are called to do as well. To walk in the truth. It's a little bit of an odd saying, isn't it? To walk in the truth. How do you do that? How do you walk in truth? What does that look like? Well, John actually gives us several examples here in these verses. We get three examples of what it does look like to walk in the truth. As we look at these three men, John, Gaius, and Demetrius. And he also gives us a picture of what it doesn't look like to walk in the truth as we look at this man, Diotrephes. So let's look and see both what it does look like and what it doesn't look like, and then let's finish by asking, so what? What's the difference that it makes for us? Before we jump in there, first, just a little context about this letter. It's a, it's a short letter that was written by John, who refers to himself as the elder here at the beginning of verse 1. He wrote it sometime late in the first century, 
And it's different from 1st and 2nd John because 1st and 2nd John were written to a church or to a group of churches that were likely in the area of Ephesus. 3rd John was written to an individual. It was written to a person named Gaius. And it's pretty typical of the letters of that time period. It has typical introductory greetings. It ends very normally in greeting uh, the, the people that are there and sending greetings back and forth. There's desire for good health expressed. But notice that it doesn't actually mention Jesus by name, per se. And it also doesn't really talk about the gospel, per se. In many ways... 3 John is an extension of 1 John. John was taking the principles that he taught us in 1 John and he's applying those biblical principles into a specific situation that he's addressing in 3 John. Remember what some of the things that he taught us in 1 John. God is love. And he has shown us true love in the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus came into this world to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the payment for our debt, to turn away God's wrath from us. And because we have been loved so well by the Lord, we are to love the Lord in response and to love each other. Those are the biblical principles that John teaches us in 1 John, and he's now taking those biblical truths and applying them into the situation going on in this church as he addresses Gaius and the other people here in the letter. So let's look and see, first of all, what it looks like to walk in the truth, these, these positive examples. And the first one that we can look at is John himself. Verses 1 through 4, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced, I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And then verse 15, peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. John's giving us a picture here of what it looks like to walk in the truth. And the first aspect of that is that you love God's people. Isn't that what John tells us? He tells us as he addresses this brother, this brother in Christ, this friend of his, Gaius, he says, I love you in the truth. I have a love for you that is anchored in the truth that's been revealed in Jesus Christ. Notice he calls him beloved four times. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, and verse 11. John loved God's people well. That's part of what it means to walk in the truth. We must love God's people well. And notice in verse 2, John prayed for God's people. He prayed for Gaius to be in good health. He prayed for Gaius to be healthy spiritually in his soul. He not only loved this brother in Christ, but he prayed for him. And notice also in verses 3 and 4, John rejoiced in seeing God's people grow and mature spiritually. He got news from others that this brother in Christ, Gaius, was faithfully loving and serving. And he rejoiced in it. He celebrated other people. Doing well spiritually. I want you to remember that when John wrote these things, he was an elderly man. It's almost 
uh, certain that he was at least in his 80s. So it's a good reminder for us, those of us that are growing older, which is everybody. We are called to walk in the truth by loving God's people and praying for God's people and rejoicing with God's people who are growing spiritually. And we are to do that our entire lives. One of the commentators that I was reading this past week said the retirement age for Christian ministry is death. We are to be walking in the truth. We are to be loving and praying for God's people and rejoicing and celebrating the way that God is at work in people's lives until Jesus comes back or he takes us to be with him. This is the first example of what it means to walk in the truth. John shows us that. We get a second example in verses 5 through 8 as we learn more about this man named Gaius. Beloved, he says to Gaius, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that they may be fellow workers for the truth. We don't know anything about Gaius other than what we read here in this passage. There are two other men mentioned as uh, with the name Gaius in the New Testament. But it's mostly likely that this is not one of those other two men, that this is a third man named Gaius. What we do know is that because of the way that John is addressing him, he was likely a, a leader in the church in Ephesus and potentially even an elder of the church. And John was writing this letter to commend him, as John says, for the faithful thing he did and all his efforts for the brothers, strangers as they are. So apparently what was going on was John had sent some traveling missionaries, some traveling preachers to go to this church. These weren't the false teachers that we heard about last week in Second John. These were faithful missionaries that were sent to minister and encourage God's people. As we see in verse 7, they went out for the sake of the name, the sake of the Lord. And so Gaius had received these brothers. He likely took them into his home. He showed them warm hospitality. He made sure that their needs were met, as we see in verses 6 through 8. Notice that John says, John points out that these traveling missionaries that had showed up, that Gaius is being uh, hospitable toward, they didn't take any support from the Gentiles. We read at the end of verse 7. The word that he used, therefore, is, uh, that he used for Gentiles is more specific than just Gentiles. It means, the, uh, specifically, it means unbelievers or pagans. So these missionaries did not receive any support from unbelievers or pagans. And since they didn't take any support from them, it was all the more important that the church would support them. And notice what John says. Gaius did this. He, he warmly showed hospitality to these traveling missionaries, even though they were strangers to him. He had never met them. So here's a second picture of what it looks like to walk in the truth. We get a third picture in verse 12. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. Here, John mentions another person that's an example of what it means to walk in love and walk in truth. We don't know anything about Demetrius. 
It's likely that he was the person that carried the letters of 2 John and 3 John from John to the church in Ephesus and to Gaius. And it was very customary during that time that you would actually say something about the courier in the letter. The courier was often someone who would have to help uh, people understand the letter. And so you wanted to make sure that the people that received the letter trusted the person that was bringing it to you. And notice, John commends Demetrius several ways. He says that Demetrius has a good testimony of the people of the church. And he also says that he has a good testimony from the truth itself, meaning he is faithful to the Lord, he is faithful to the Word of God. And John, on top of all of that, says, and I'm going to add my testimony as well, that he is trustworthy. So here we have this man named Demetrius, He gives us a picture of a life that is conformed to the Word of God, conformed to the truth. He is a faithful disciple of Jesus and seen that way by the church and by the Apostle John. And he is faithfully serving John and the Lord by doing a good job of bringing these letters to the people in Ephesus. I want you to notice, we don't hear anything else about Demetrius. I don't believe he's mentioned anywhere else in the scriptures. It's a picture of a faithful, simple, unadorned discipleship in the ordinary things of life. Just being a courier of the word of God to the people of God. There was no big fanfare, no notoriety other than John pointing out that this was a man that could be trusted. This is another picture of what it looks like to to walk in the truth. So we have these three examples of what it does look like to walk in the truth. Pastor Steve and I were talking this past week about a little statement that the Apostle Paul makes in 1 Corinthians. He actually says it twice. And essentially what he says is this. Imitate me as I follow Christ. I wonder if any of us would be so bold as to say that. Paul Paul was not being arrogant. He was simply saying this, as I'm following the Lord Jesus, as I'm loving Jesus, as I'm loving one another, as I'm faithfully obedient to the Lord, then you should imitate me in those things. And there's a sense in which we can say, as John and Gaius and Demetrius are being faithful and walking in the truth and walking with the Lord, we should imitate how they are doing those things. But we also get an example of what it doesn't look like to walk in the truth, and we get that in verses 9 through 11. John says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Now this Diotrephes was really a piece of work. Again, we don't know anything about this man other than what John tells us here. And what does John tell us about him? Well, the first thing he says is that he likes to put himself first. He he liked to be the center of attention. He, He liked to be in control. He liked to put his needs and his wants and his desires before others. 
This is a picture of a man who is selfish. He didn't acknowledge, John says, he doesn't acknowledge John's authority. Now, again, John's not being arrogant. He's just pointing out that this man didn't respect and follow the words of an apostle. Someone who had been set apart by Jesus himself. And even worse than that, he goes on and says that Diotrephes talked wicked nonsense against John and probably the other leaders of the church. He tells tells us that in verse 10. The word that he uses there for nonsense means to disparage someone or to slander someone. Maybe he was gossiping. Maybe he was saying untrue things about John in order to undermine John and and to prop himself up and to make himself more of the focus and more of the leadership of the church. Whatever it was that he was saying, notice John says, it was wicked. And if that wasn't bad enough, John says he wasn't content with just that. Diotrephes went on to refuse to welcome those Christian missionaries and preachers that were on their way and coming to be with those people from John. He was not showing warm, loving hospitality like Gaius had been showing. He wasn't caring for the needs and the supplies of these men who were coming. He wasn't giving them a place to stay. And notice it's even past that. He says he went out of his way to keep others in the church who wanted to be hospitable. He kept them from doing it. And those that tried to do it anyway, notice what he says. He used church discipline in an unbiblical way to excommunicate those who were trying to be hospitable. I think we can sum up this example by saying, don't be like Diotrephes. Don't imitate him. And isn't that what John says exactly in verse 11? Don't imitate evil. Imitate what is good, what is true. So John gives us these three positive examples of what it looks like to walk in the truth. And he gives us this one negative example of what it looks like to not be walking in the truth. But we can ask the question, so what? What are we supposed to do with this? What are our takeaways for today? Well, the first thing is this. If we want to love well, we must know how well we've been loved. We have these pictures of these men who were loving God's people well, who were loving the church well. And if we want to love God's people and love the church well, we must know how well we've been loved. As I said earlier, we have to read the the book of 3 John in the context of what John said in 1 John. And in 1 John, he called God's people to love others because of how well they have been loved by the Lord. To love, to, to walk in truth, and to do that well, we need to know how well we've been loved. Let's go back to the Chronicles of Narnia story. I left out the part of what motivated Diggory to be faithful in that moment when he was tempted, when he was, when he was tempted with immortality of living forever, when he was tempted with the, the possibility of being able to heal his mother. What kept him faithful to Aslan? What kept him loving Aslan more than those things for himself? Well, before, As, before Diggory left, Lewis tells us, That when Aslan asked Diggory if he was ready to go on this quest to get an apple, Lewis says that 
before he answered, Diggory thought, what I should do is I should say yes, as long as you heal my mother. And then Diggory thought, that's probably not a good thing to say to Aslan. A quid pro quo. Probably not a safe thing to say either. So Diggory realized that he shouldn't say that, and so he agreed to go on the quest. But then, not as a condition of his obedience, but out of his grief, he cried out to Aslan and said, Won't you please help and heal my mother? Lewis tells us that Aslan looked deeply into Diggory's face and told him that he too understood what real grief is. Diggory looked up into the face of the great lion and he saw that Aslan was crying. He was crying, Lewis says, big silvery tears down his eyes. And Diggory says that at that moment he realized that Aslan loved Diggory and Diggory's mother more than Diggory did. When Diggory was at that moment of temptation, when he was tempted to give in and to go against Aslan, he was able to love and to walk in the truth because he knew how well he was loved by Aslan. And brothers and sisters in Christ, how much more so for us who have been loved perfectly and infinitely by the Lord. What our Savior has done for us shows a love and a care that is beyond anything that we will ever be able to fathom. If we want to love and obey Jesus and love and serve others, we need to be motivated by the gospel. I came across a a quote from one of my seminary professors who's now the stated clerk of our denomination, Dr. Brian Chappell. This is what he said. There is a chemistry of the heart that is activated when we grasp the magnitude of God's love for us. It's that love that causes us to desire him. And it's that desire that makes us want to walk with him. What sparks that want? It's not faith in what we do, but in what Christ has done on our behalf. Those are powerful and accurate words. There is a chemistry of the heart that is activated when we grasp the magnitude of God's love for us. If we want to love well and we want to walk in the truth well, we need to put our eyes on Jesus and his love for us. We must spend the rest of our lives learning the depth and the breadth of Jesus's love for us, using all of the tools that the Lord gives us to help us to understand that. A second takeaway. We need to be ruthless in driving selfishness out of our hearts. Diotrephes should be a reminder to us to fight and to lean against even the smallest inklings of selfishness in our hearts. There's a danger in letting selfishness, even little aspects of it, to just linger in our heart. The desire to be first the desire to be seen, the desire to be applauded. I can imagine that it's possible that this man Diotrephes wasn't always as bad as he is described here in 3 John. 
Maybe he had been a faithful and helpful servant in the church at one point. And maybe he started having desires that he would have maybe just a little bit more control, a little bit more say in the church, a little bit more power, a little bit more notoriety. If we leave selfishness unchecked in our hearts, it will grow and it will multiply. Even to the point, as we see here in 3 John, of denying the authority of God's word, slandering others and using scripture to harm people. Our struggle with this selfishness goes back to the very beginning of sin in this world. Adam and Eve were selfish when they put what they wanted before what the Lord had commanded them. And it shows up in our lives in so many different ways. How does selfishness show up in your life? I'm going to do something I don't normally do in a sermon. I'm actually going to pause for a few moments. I want us to just reflect on that. Where do you see selfishness in your life, in your heart? Take a couple moments and reflect on that. Were you able to come up with one? Maybe two? Maybe a few more? Brothers and sisters in Christ, we must be ruthless. We must be vigilant in rooting the selfishness out of our hearts. And the most powerful place to start is to go back to the gospel. Because in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we see the perfect example of selflessness. Jesus left heaven to come into this world. He came into this world and endured ridicule and isolation and threats and pain and torture and even death itself. And the scriptures tell us that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that, through the, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The more that the truth of the gospel of our unselfish Savior grips our hearts and our imaginations, the more that we will be motivated, the more that we will be empowered to be ruthless in rooting out even the smallest glimpses of selfishness. And that leads us to our final takeaway for today. We must practice love-motivated hospitality. As God's people who have experienced the love of God, we've experienced the hospitality of God, we should be people who live lives of love-motivated hospitality toward others. That should be happening in our homes. It should be happening in our vocations. It should be happening in our church. It should happen with people that we know. It should happen with people who are strangers to us. It should happen with people who are in need around us. It should happen with missionaries and people who are traveling through and doing or reporting on ministry that they're doing. And I want you to notice that John says something to us here about the quality of our hospitality. You see that at the end of verse 6? What kind of hospitality are we to exhibit? Are we to show? He says, you will do well, Gaius, to send them on their way, on their journey, in a manner worthy of God. 
That's the standard of our hospitality. Our hospitality is to be done in a manner that's worthy of God. Think of it this way. If Jesus was coming to your house today for lunch, what kind of hospitality would you show him? How accommodating would you be to Jesus? How welcoming, how how joyful in your hospitality would you be? We shouldn't be any less for the people of God. I want you to notice here too, lastly, that there's a benefit when we do show this kind of loving, motivated hospitality. Notice what he says in verse 8. When we show gracious, generous hospitality to missionaries, to workers in the kingdom of God, he says we become fellow workers with them in what God is doing and how God is at work. That means that when we are financially supporting missionaries and ministries uh, that are doing the Lord's work, when we invite them into our home and we show them hospitality, when we make sure that they have what they need for the work that they are doing, we are partnering with them. We are fellow workers with them. We are participating in what the Lord is doing in building His church and His kingdom. What a blessing it is to be hospitable to those that the Lord brings across our path. So what does it look like to walk in truth, to walk in love and walk in truth? It looks like loving others well because we know how well we've been loved by the Lord. It looks like rooting out even the smallest specks of selfishness in our hearts. And it looks like practicing love-motivated hospitality for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for this little letter. It's probably very easy for us to overlook it probably easy for us to think of it as being fairly obscure. Certainly, Father, it was written in a place far from here. And yet, Father, we know that it is in your word because you want to teach us from it. And so we pray that you would open our eyes, that we've just scratched the surface in understanding the depth of your love and mercy and how that might impact how we live. So I pray that you give us a hunger to dive deeper into these things. And you would feed us, Father, with your word and also now with the Lord's Supper. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.